Are you hesitating to take the next step in your e-commerce journey? Founder Plus has you covered with proven frameworks tailored to your business needs for fast results, a supportive community of over 30,000 like-minded entrepreneurs and weekly live mentorship sessions. Founder Plus is your key to success. Try Founder Plus today for just $1 for seven days and start building your dream business with confidence. You can visit founder.com forward slash start dollar trial or click the link in the description to claim your trial. This is episode number 206 with Linda Weinman of the Founder Podcast. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating, fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. The Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Go, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amoroso, Robert Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Before we start today's episode, I just want to let you know that our goal at Founder is to help entrepreneurs succeed however we can by giving away high quality content in the form of interviews, blog posts, podcasts, YouTube videos, you name it. We put out so much content to help you. And another interesting project that we're working on right now is partnering with world-class founders like Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills like negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Founder Podcast. My name is Nathan Chan and I am the host of this show and also the CEO of Founder Magazine. If you're new to this podcast, uh, we interview some of the greatest entrepreneurs of our generation to really just uh, get them to share their experiences and lessons learned on what they've learned and what it takes to build and grow a successful business. So what's been happening, guys? Um, I hope you're having a great day wherever you are around the world. Um, we just finished up our quarter three strategy day planning and reviewed quarter two, lots in the pipeline. Um, one thing I'm really excited about is our YouTube channel. We're going to be starting to produce like founder weekly behind the scenes vlogs um, so that's going to be coming out soon and we're going to go hardcore on video soon. So, um, I'm really excited to share all this stuff with you guys because you guys can start to see the team and what we're building and all the behind the scenes of everything that's coming out. And, uh, I think it's going to be such a great way, like Gary, Gary V says to kind of document, um, what we're building. Cause what we're building is, is really special. And I just want to say thanks so much, uh, to you for just kind of following along the journey and, and being part of this community. So, Let's talk about today's guest. Her name is Linda Weinman, and she founded the company called Linda.com. Now, Linda.com was bought by a company you might have heard of called LinkedIn for $1.5 billion. That's billion with a B. 
And uh, I talked to Linda kind of post-acquisition and, you know, she's really just enjoying her life right now. And it's quite interesting uh, to hear what she's up to right now, what she's working on, and really the story of Linda and how it became to be what it is today. And, you know, Linda was doing, like, with, with her husband, she was doing, you know, courses before they were anything. And I actually, you know, I would be stupid because we're we're building a big educational platform for founder. I, I would be stupid not to ask Linda what her advice would be for me at Founder and what all the stuff that we're working on and what we're doing. So, yeah, it, this was an incredible interview. Linda was very, very candid with what it takes, her answers, and, and how to build a successful business or a business the size of what she's built with with Linda. It's it's one of the largest educational startup platforms out there. Uh, it's not so much of a startup anymore, but incredible story. So you guys are in for an absolute treat. I hope you enjoy this episode. If you are enjoying any of these episodes, please do take the time to leave us a review wherever you are listening, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, you name it. Please do leave us a review and make sure you subscribe so you don't miss an episode. All right, guys, that's it from me. Now let's jump into the show. The first question that I ask uh, everyone that comes on is how did you get your job? Well, you know, I've, I've sold our company, so I'm no longer, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure if you want to talk about lynda.com or you want to talk about what I'm doing today. Let's start, let's start with Linda. Or was that, or did you start another, like, did you start another company before that? Um, Oh, I mean, I started lynda.com when I was 40 years old. Yeah. Wow. So, so, um, (laughs) I guess I had, I had had many careers and many jobs. Yeah. So, so where did it all start then? Like, like how did it all lead up to Linda and then now you're doing what? So can we start from the beginning? Uh, sure. I mean, I had many careers. I, I've been working since I was 15. Um, my first job was at a hot dog stand and, you know, kind of worked my way up from there. I was, I was uh, for many years worked in retail. I guess my first entrepreneurial um, episode was when I started a store when I was, uh, 23 and, um, I closed it when I was 28 and then I went into, uh, animation and special effects. And while I was an animator, I discovered the computer, you know, fairly early by computer standards. I mean, I think the personal computer was invented in 78 and I got my first computer in 1980. So, um, you know, I wasn't the first out the gate, but pretty close in time to the beginning of where it all started. And so then we, uh, from, from there, I had my first computer and I had to teach myself everything because there were no classes you could take or book. There were a few books. Most of them were really written for techies. I wasn't a techie. I was just sort of an enthusiast like a lot of people can relate to these days, you know, people who just can't stop being addicted to their phones or their computers or whatever. And so I had that happen to me, you know, maybe before a lot of other people had computers. So, so I saw that, you know, to me, it was a fascinating new discipline that, that I found really interesting. And, 
And so I taught myself a lot about uh, computer graphics and it just became sort of natural where people started to ask me how I was doing things. And I slowly realized that I really enjoyed teaching and, and then um, shifted from animation and special effects to becoming a computer graphics teacher. Oh. And so what happened next? Uh, well, I, I was teaching at um, many universities. There were a lot. There was a big demand for people to learn computer graphics. You know, I think the first killer app for the computer really became desktop publishing. But I was more interested in screen graphics that had to do more with um, things like Photoshop and After Effects and interactive media uh, screen graphics, what I would call screen graphics. And, um, so I became a, a teacher, uh, kind of gradually transitioned from doing animation and special effects. And I started to write articles and, um, teach at universities. And so when I first discovered the web, I was already a teacher and I was already writing articles. And so, um, it just hit me like a thunderbolt that this is, a really important new medium and that I was in a good position to learn how to use it and teach other people how to use it. So that was how really lynda.com was formed as first it started as my own personal website um, that I used to teach myself web design. And then it ultimately became the company name and um, you know, the bigger, the bigger idea. Yeah, I see. So, so it started off as a personal website to to just really teach yourself, um, you know, everything everything around, like uh, I guess, software and and computer graphics, animation, interactive design, and and motion graphics and stuff like that. Um, so, so how did it form into into kind of this massive educational platform? Like, 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 how did you get that? Like, like, how how did that start? How did how did that idea like come to life and fruition? Well, I wrote a book about web design, and it was one of the first books. And it was written in layperson's language, which was sort of my specialty was how to explain technical things to non-technical people. And um, the book, un unbelievably, you know, it was my very first book that I'd ever written, became a bestseller and was translated into dozens of languages. And I started getting a lot of uh, teaching requests and writing requests. And so by the time um, I, at the time I decided, well, I guess I could do full-time writing and um, I could leave my post at the university where I was teaching Art Center College of Design. And um, my husband and I moved to a small town where we just had an internet connection and I thought I could write books and still travel and speak and, and give classes for other people. And then <clears throat> my husband had the idea, well, maybe you could offer your own classes. And that was the, really the beginning of, um, of us going and creating a business, like a larger business idea. And it started as a brick and mortar classroom and the um, sales of the book, which were, you know, were high. There were a lot of sales gave, everybody, the website, lynda.com. And so that was how our readers found the website. And then on the website, we were advertising classes 
and we eventually opened a classroom, a full-time classroom. Ultimately, we opened two, and we were going pretty much year-round teaching um, web design courses. They were week-long courses or weekend courses, and we started hiring other teachers. And there was just a huge demand because um, web design still wasn't being taught in school. It was still very nascent, very new, and there were really only a few experts, and I was one of them. And then some of the other teachers that we brought on were other experts in that space. And eventually, um, we so we had the physical classroom for many years. And after the 9-11 attacks on the Twin Towers, um, a lot of things changed. The, the U.S. economy took a nosedive. The dot-com boom had its first crash, and um, people stopped traveling, and budgets dried up. And so we had to shift from having a brick-and-mortar classroom to putting lessons online. Well, we didn't have to shift, but we decided to shift that way. And um, that became the much larger idea, although it took several years for it to really take off. Mm, because... I guess back then was it difficult to build a to build a platform to to host uh, oh, yeah. your courses? Oh yeah, I mean there were no web services like today. Everything had to be built from scratch. We were we were before YouTube, so oh, wow. you know we were doing um, progressive downloads of QuickTime. It wasn't even streaming, oh, wow. and it was very low resolution. It was um, well, it was six forty by four eighty for a really long time, which is you know, very hard. I mean, it's not television resolution. It's, it's lower than that. So in the early days, our product was kind of, I don't know if you've ever heard of VHS. It was a, it doesn't exist anymore, but it was like, (laughs) well, you don't know when you meet young people today, you never know what they know. Um, and you know, I don't, I think that's really part of, you know, the, the issue is that things change very rapidly and, everybody kind of enters at their own time frame, And I feel like I was there at sort of the beginning of time when a lot of things were happening quickly in the tech space. And I had this rare ability, which was to be able to explain things to non-technical people and just really capitalized on that sort of, you know, uh, juxtaposition of, new technology and non-technical people who needed to learn new technology. And my focus was um, very much for artists and creatives because um, that was my background. And I'd worked in special effects and animation and most of my friends were in those fields. And so I knew that a lot of artists, I mean, it's sort of a stereotype, but um, especially back then before technology was very prevalent, um, weren't the most technical people, but, yet they have the right skill set to make art and media and things for the internet. So it was sort of this, you know, new opportunity for artists that I felt like I was a bridge at that moment in time to help a lot of people cross over. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. So, so the first like batch of, of courses, as you said, they were like downloads and, and like, they were like, like you said, similar quality to a VHS, um, and, and and how how did you price them? What was the model? You didn't have subscription back then, or no? We started the online version of Lynda.com as a subscription. We were one of the first subscription websites, but we started the videos before we offered them from 
from the platform. We started them as actual VHS tapes. Oh, In wow. fact, we even had beta. We had beta and VHS for a while. And then we um, and then we put them online in in this progressive download kind of format. And then we started making DVDs and stopped making the um, the tapes. Um, but you know, really, what I always say is, what we were selling was the instruction, and really just the different form factors of the media were irrelevant. It was just whatever worked for people, but. We were one of the very first subscription sites. Um, you know, we started our subscription service in 2001. And I think that's right around the time that Netflix started. I mean, we were out there with the earliest of subscription sites. And we had to build our own platform because there's really no other way to do it. There's There was no turnkey system that you could purchase. or uh, So, yeah, a lot of, you know, arrows in your back and a lot of expense that Someone today wouldn't have to, um, you know, go through all of that. But then on the other hand, there's a lot more competition today. So there's something to be said about being early. Mm. So, so how did you fund like the the product, like the the production of that of that platform and and that and offering a subscription and stuff like that? Um, well, we actually were profitable from the very beginning. Um, you know, we had these brick and mortar classes, and they were. They were very successful. Our first year in business with the brick and mortar classes, we had $1.7 million in revenue. Oh, wow. And um, by the time we were three years in before 9-11, you know, 9-11 was a really big turning point. Um, but before that, when there was still the internet, the first internet boom, and a lot of people were getting funding for just for ideas, and there was a lot of kind of gold rush stuff happening. Our revenue went up to three and a half million dollars, um, and we had a team of about forty people, and um, we were just nonstop doing physical classrooms and writing books and doing consulting and making VHS tapes. So we were doing a lot of different things. Like I said, the the product was the instruction, and and we were we were packaging it in many different ways. Um, so when we switched over to subscription service. A class, a week-long class, had been fifteen hundred U.S. dollars, and we had a twenty-five dollar a month subscription service. So it actually cannibalized our classroom sales, and it cannibalized our. I think we sold a VHS for one hundred and fifty dollars. We were actually eating into our own customer base and our own profit, and really um, offering, you know, it at such a um, such a value that it was impacting us in a negative way, but we did it anyway, just because a lot of things started to change at that point. We, um, we had to downsize. We were, we had been 35 people. We had to lay off almost everybody. We went down to nine people. Um, we were doing everything we could writing books and, and doing, um, uh, consulting, a lot of consulting work and we closed our classrooms and then, you know, there was, we were in the middle of sort of a big transition and it wasn't the smartest economic transition for us. And we had no way to know if it would pay off or not. And it, it, it took many years before it did pay off. It wasn't a flip of a switch success. It was a very hard business and bad business decision at the time. Mm. So if you knew what you knew now, well, back then, if, would have you stayed with the subscription model? Because 
I guess when it comes to, you know, subscription versus one-off, subscription uh, breeds predictability. Um, I guess it's it's a great way to to uh, guarantee income, a certain level of income, of course, of course there's churn, but um, it's, yeah, it, it's a great way to uh, build a business and, and you can see it you can you can see it predictably going up or down, but generally, if you're doing a good job, you, it, it continues to go up and you keep selling. Um, was yeah? Would would have you not done that looking back or? Oh no, I wouldn't have done anything differently. I mean, we had a spectacular um, run of it, and um, we had you know we were we were chart because we were charging. You know, you look at what's happening today with so many free services where they're really selling their own customers, you know, private privacy and private information as the business model. And our business model was to charge a very reasonable fee for something that was actually far more expensive in any other form. And, uh, you know, it just took a while for it to reach critical mass. There was no social media at that time. There was no Facebook. There was no such thing as social media. So it grew in a viral way, but viral was, you know, like I said, we were before YouTube. So that it wasn't an obvious way to grow that business. It was all word of mouth. It was all based on the quality and it was not very, you know, I would say it probably was a five to seven year period before it started to really be successful and really fuel our growth. Like around the 2006, 2008 timeframe was where we were just growing like a freight train and we knew we had a tiger by the tail. We were getting a lot of VC interest. And we had succeeded at, you know, we were one of the very few subscription services and we were very profitable and we were very, we were growing at a, at a tremendous rate. So um, we were in a pretty, you know, fantastic position. So I wouldn't change anything. It just, what I would tell people is that it took patience and you have to kind of assess whether it's going to work or it isn't going to work. And in the beginning, it didn't really look like it was going to work, but it was one iron in the fire where we had many different revenue streams, like, in, you know, different ways to make revenue. And it was just one, but it wasn't the biggest, it was the smallest. And um, it was just really lucky that we held on to it and let it grow. Because if you had judged by the, you know, first early years, you would have said it was a failure. So what were the other revenue streams and what kept you going during those hard times back in, you know, 2001 and? Uh, wrote books, uh, private consulting, speaking gigs, you know, just anything and, and uh, lowering expenses. So let, laying people off, everything we could do to keep our head above water. Mm. And, and why, why did you, why did you keep going with it? Like if you said it wasn't like the, yeah, like, like, um, like you said, it took like five to seven years before the it turned into a real rocket ship. How did you know you were onto something and, and what kept you going? Well, I think, you know, I love to teach. I don't teach anymore, but at that moment in time, that was my identity. I was a teacher and I loved teaching. And I was just felt really lucky to get paid to do what I loved. And it wasn't really a question of making a lot of money. It was just a question of can I can I survive doing what I love? And I could. And so even at that point in time where we lowered ourselves down to nine people and we, um, 
our revenue went down below, I think it was like our worst year was under a million dollars in revenue. And we had been much higher than that. It still wasn't to the point where you have to shutter or you can't, you know, afford to live. So it was, it was scary and it wasn't um, pleasant to be struggling, but it wasn't time to throw in the towel either. Mm, I see. And at that time, like with the subscription offering, um, and, and, and were you the only teacher or did you, you, you said you had nine staff. So that some of those staff were teachers as well. How, how often were you producing courses and, and, and what did that look like? And did the platform evolve during that period? Like you had to spend money to, I guess, to, cause you said you were very profitable. Were you still profitable back then to fund upgrades on this, on the, on the software and, and stuff like that? Or, I mean, we had to grow a lot slower and in the beginning you know probably the first year and we had a little small programming staff two or three people uh who were full-time they were probably out of those nine people two or three of them were programmers um and i was the primary teacher for a long time my husband was the next uh primary teacher and at one point he surpassed me and he was teaching more classes than i were was and then um, we, all of the other teachers that we worked with, it was work for hire. So we, we paid them advances and they also got royalties based on the popularity of their materials. And I knew a lot of teachers because I was working in the space for a long time before we started with um, Lynda.com even, you know, I mean, that was my career. I was a, I was a career teacher of technology mostly computer graphics. That was my, that was what I did. So I, um, so yes, we kept expanding it and it was just not a huge return on the investment right out the gate. It was, it was slow, but it wasn't enough. It wasn't so bad that we were losing money or we, you know, yeah, I would say we were still profitable and the way to still be profitable was to lower our expenses and work our tails off, you know, just doing every, saying yes to everything and probably doing way too much. So you said that um, by the time it hit 2006, 2008, that's when things just really turned into a rocket ship. Like, like, how did you know? Like, how did you, like, did, did, did just subscriptions just start booming all of a sudden or, or was just a gradual progression? Well, it was a gradual doubling. And if you think about it, you know, when you double one, it's two. When you double two, it's four, you know, eight, 16, 32. You start to get into bigger and bigger numbers as you double. So we had, we were just doubling every year. And I think around that period of time, like the 2006 to 2008, um, we had hit what I heard was a magic number for venture uh, firms to be interested, which is $10 million revenue a year. One year it was 10 million. The next year it was 20. The next year it was 40. The next year it was 80. It was, it was like that, you know, and that starts to be significant money and significant valuations too. So, um, yeah, it, the doubling had a exponential factor to it. Mm. So what happened next? Um, did you guys move to, to, to San Francisco, Silicon Valley or? No, we were never a, a Silicon Valley company. We stayed in um, Ventura County, 
um, Santa Barbara County. Eventually, by the time the company sold, we had a San Francisco office, and we had San we had uh, actually offices all over the world. We had a couple of international offices, and we had bought a company in Austria. Um, and so we had, um, you know, hundreds of employees and hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue. I mean, it was a very sizable company by the time it sold. Yeah. Wow. And, and during that time period, how did you keep the content relevant? Because things like, you know, computer graphics, animation, interactive design, motion graphics, um, those things change like, like all sorts of software technology and stuff that changes. So, so how are you maintaining that? Well, that's your business. You know, your business model is you better maintain it. You better be good. You better stay ahead of the curve. Um, so by the time again, you know, towards the, the sale of the company, it was hundreds of courses a year. I mean, I think, um, I don't even remember the numbers, but we had recording booths going nonstop people, you know, at one time recording 10 classes in the same week, you know, it's still, um, LinkedIn now owns it, which was bought by Microsoft, but, um, they still have, you know, lots of recording booths and a lot of recording activity, probably, you know, hundreds of hours, a um, a month. Mm. And that's, that, that is the, that's your business. So it's your business to stay relevant. It's your business to have high quality and it's your, business to predict the curves of, of the changes. If you're not good at that, you don't have any chance of succeeding. So how did, uh, how did, how did the sale of, of lynda.com come around and, and did you have many other companies besides LinkedIn interested? And, and, uh, you said you love to teach at what point did you stop teaching? Well, I probably stopped teaching the last five years of the company because it just got to be so big and there were so many moving parts and we were expanding. We did take venture capital. Um, let's see what year, like I think it was 2013 or 12. Um, so so we had a, yeah, so we had a board, you know, a different kind of a board of directors. We'd, we'd had a board of directors for a long time, but you know, we had investors suddenly on our board we had a lot of people wanting to invest in us more than we had a lot of people wanting to buy us, at least that I'm aware of, but we were really not even for sale when the company sold. It's just that LinkedIn really wanted to buy us and they, they kind of targeted us and they made us a very attractive offer that we accepted. But part of their offer was you can't shop this around. If you want, if you want our offer, it's not, you're not putting yourself on the open market. And so we learned after it had sold to them that there were other interested parties, but we just had never put ourselves out there. Mm. And do you think, like one one thing that someone once told me is is you you don't you don't sell your company, um, it, it it gets sold. Like, do you think um, looking back, like that's always the best way to approach things? Just just focus on building your company and 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 fulfilling your vision and, and mission and and then people will, like, if, if your company's sold, people will come to you. If, if you put it out there, you, you ne- don't necessarily get the best price. I, I bet that's true. I mean, I've only had it happen to me this one way where it wasn't for sale and we got a great offer. Um, but, you know, there are a lot of, like, one of the things that LinkedIn said, because we had just closed a Series B, 
and our one of our uh, the the investor on the Series B was TPG, and one of the comments that LinkedIn made was, "Well, we know you're pre-vetted because TPG invested in you, and they're not going to invest in a company that they haven't thoroughly investigated, right?" And so um, I think there's it probably if you are interested in selling your company, um, sometimes the the getting the different investors and and series investments um it it adjusts your valuation it it lets people know kind of at what level you are because the blue chip investors are only going to invest in in companies that they really believe in and so um in a way they are your advertisement that you're for sale mm. so was it hard to to let it go and cuz i guess you know linda Linda would, would be, because like you said, you love to teach it. It would have been a, a big part of your identity as, as a founder. Like the company was called your name. And yep. why was that? Uh, well, that was sort of accidental, the whole calling it my name thing. But um, no, but for sure, it was a huge part of my identity and my husband's too, because we really built it together. And it was a very sudden um, sale. It was It was very quick. Um, you know, they made us an offer and six weeks later, they were announcing it. It was public knowledge. Um, so that's not a huge amount of time to adjust to the idea that you're not, you know, uh, driving the ship anymore, you know, cause, um, you have your own strategies and you have your own goals and then, you know, another company is going to buy you and you aren't sure if they're going to have the same priorities, the same values, the same anything, you know? So it was sort of this put on the brakes and just stop everything and you're not steering anymore. And of course that's a very tough transition and, um, you know, takes a while to adjust to. Um, so I would say, yeah, it was difficult. Mm. So what happened next? Well, um, I had some very good business advice, which was to not make any decisions for a year. And I thought, you know, I mean, I had a couple of very obvious directions I could go in personally. Um, to me, they were to either continue with online education or to become kind of a spokesperson for female entrepreneurship. Um, and I, I, I wanted to sort of take toll and see if either of those ideas felt right. And they didn't. And the thing that was sort of calling to me was um, I, I was very, very interested in film and the power of independent cinema and documentaries. And I wanted to challenge myself to do something totally new. And I didn't really have to worry about making money. And so um, and I'd already become very philanthropic over the years with Linda because at our levels of revenue, we were already um, supporting a lot of causes and local, um, nonprofits and things like that. And I had already been on the board of our local film festival for about six years. And so, um, that was the thing I got invited to the Sundance workshop that was, um, introducing potential funders to filmmakers who were looking for funding and I just felt like I was at home. You know, it was like a world I could really relate to. Um, I've always had an affinity for artists and worked with artists and creatives. And um, I feel like 
the world has sort of changed a lot in the way that people consume news and information and media. And that film is one of the, the most powerful forms of media that we have. And so that was the direction that I started to move into was to invest um, mostly with charitable grants, invest in, uh, in filmmakers. And I became much more active on the board of uh, Santa Barbara International Film Festival. Eventually, I became president. I've been president for over a year. Um, and that's been, been sort of my, my direction. And it's really been joyful. I've enjoyed it. Um, it isn't the same as being a founder and having, you know, a company and eating, breathing, sleeping that every day. It isn't as stressful. Um, you know, I'm in my, um, early sixties, so I'm not, you know, and I worked really, really hard, like from my forties through my, we sold Linda when I was 60. And so, um, it's tiring and you probably shave a lot of years off your life to work that hard. And so it's sort of a wonderful position to be in to um, be able to be philanthropic and give back and um, still do what you're passionate about, and what you're interested in. So I'm a very, very lucky person, but I've also created a lot of my own luck. Mm. That's amazing. I can I can hear the joy in, in your voice when you talk about the work that you're doing now. That's so cool. Thank you. Um, so just 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 like just wrapping it all back. Um, like when it comes to, you know, everything, like all the success that you've achieved with Lynda.com and and you know, it was sold for, for a significant amount of money. Um, like what like what you said you wouldn't do anything differently, but what are some great lessons that you'd love to share with our audience that, that you, you, cause you, you've been you're an, a founder for a very, very long period of time. What are, what are some things that you'd love to share in, in essence that I, I'm sure like, are you an advisor to, to any startups in particular or any educational startups that, that you're seeing, you know, yeah, I just love to hear, just kind of open it. Well, I do um, get asked to do a lot of consulting and advising, and I don't, I, I turn everything down because, you know, there's only one of me and I only have so much time and I, I feel like I gave at the office, you know, I, I gave a lot of myself when I was a founder and it's a later stage of my life and I'm, you know, looking to work less and still do the things that I love. And so I don't actually invest in startups or, or consult with startups. Very occasionally I'll have an old friend come out of the woodwork or, you know, somebody who I just can't say no to and I'll, you know, give them a little bit of advice, but it's not really the thing that fuels me. And, um, and I do, I do love, uh, being charitable, but, you know, it's sort of on my own terms with the sorts of things that I, I find, you know, sort of gratifying and challenging at this, at this time, I'm the kind of person I don't like to do what I've already done. I like to do something new. And so I'm, I'm, challenging myself to learn about a whole new industry and it's, and it's very gratifying and very fun. So I think, you know, the primary, um, sort of advice that I give to people is follow what it is that you want to do. I mean, if you end up just chasing money, it's probably not going to work out. If you, you know, there are a lot of people who are very, very driven and very, very ambitious to make a lot of money and look at what we did. And like, I want to do that, you know, 
but we didn't want to do what we did. It happened over time and it was gradual and it was, it was an outcome that we worked towards, but not a singular outcome. The singular outcome was to, you know, do our passion, which was teaching and sharing and helping people with technology and um, make a living doing it and be able to pay our employees and ourselves. And that was really the, the whole, you know, uh, motivation behind it. Now it started to grow really fast and grow really big. And we had the opportunity to sell it long before or to take money long before we did. And we just weren't finished. We still had a lot of things we wanted to do and we felt like we were the right people to be in charge. But keep in mind, if you do take money, that that is, you know, no one's giving you money out of the goodness of their heart. They're giving you money because they want a return on their investment. And that return on the investment will mean that you either go public or you sell your company. So if you're not ready to do those things, don't take money. And um, if you, you know, I think if you are ready to do those things, just we were very lucky to be in the driver's seat and be able to say no to a lot of people. And I felt like we were interviewing our investors as much as they were interviewing us. And, you know, that's another realization that I think if you're in the, if you're in a position where you, you hold the controls of your company and you really can't do that if you're desperate or you're hurting, you know, so it is super important to try to find profitable ground and sustainable business models and practices. And some of that means sacrifice. And it, it just means you don't chase getting rich. You chase the dream of just sustaining and growing at whatever your natural growth rate should be. And for us, our natural growth rate was, was really, really fast. And, and that was its own challenge. But for other people that I know who are entrepreneurs, it's much slower and um, I think the real the real challenge is to love what you do and be able to have the privilege to do what you love. And, you know, that to me is just the key to life. Amazing. And um, you said that uh, you worked really, really hard that you perhaps shaved a few years off your life or, or, or you should have because you worked that hard. Like what kind of hours were we talking? I mean, just when you own your own company, it's 24-7. It's what you think about almost every waking moment of your life. It's, uh, you know, you go to sleep with it, you wake up with it, you're, you're worried about this, you're worried about that. It's a lot of stress. It's not for the, it's not for the stress adverse. Mm. Yeah, I see. And um, when it, um, I, I'd be, I'd be crazy not to ask you this question, but um, when it comes to, you know, everything that you've done at Linda and and building an educational startup, that's kind of near and dear to my heart because um, for us as, as a magazine and, and a media entity that produces a lot of content, um, one thing, you know, like because magazines are uh, – some, some, a lot of magazine companies are, are shutting down. One thing that we've found is, uh, is building out a, 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 an offering around educational – uh, courses as well. And, um, I guess, uh, you know, for us, um, we can't, and we don't want to, um, or it doesn't make sense for us to, I guess, offer courses in, in other, uh, categories apart from entrepreneurship and startups and and marketing and stuff like that. So we're, we're, we're really developing an educational offering, um, for founders and, and we're starting really, really slowly, like, you know, just one, 
one one course at a time, getting teachers in and just, just slowly like only teaching what our audience tells us they want to learn the most. Um, and, you know, this year we'll be developing 12 courses. Last year I think we did like three and we're just slowly building up, selling it once off. Like what would your advice be or, or you know, I'd be crazy not to ask you, right? <laughs> well, I think you're doing it exactly the right way. You know, you're uh, listening to your audience. You're, you know, you'll get their feedback whether they buy or they don't buy your your materials. That'll be the litmus test if they if they like it or they don't. And um, I wouldn't do it too quickly. I wouldn't artificially, you know, make it faster than what the demand is. Um, and I think you'll find the right rhythm. But that sounds about right to me. Mm. And do you think? Um, cause one thing like, you know, we, we haven't launched a, a subscription offering yet and, and, and we may, we may not, we, we haven't worked that part out yet. But one thing, um, that, that I'm quite worried about is churn. What, what are your thoughts on, on that side of things with, with a subscription based model? Well, that's your biggest problem any, any subscription, uh, model. And so, you know, for us, we had sort of an interesting attitude about churn because, there's a certain amount of it that's just not a bad thing. I mean, if you are, um, if you've already taken the marketing class and the, and the founder 101 or whatever, and then you're on to needing to study something else or do something else, of course, you're going to stop subscribing. And it isn't necessarily a reflection of the bad product that's being offered. It's a reflection of the fact that the user might have some different goal in mind. And, you know, we made it really easy to subscribe and unsubscribe and come in and come out. And, you know, sometimes people go away for a few months or they get really busy with something or they change jobs or they change schools. And, and that is a, that is not necessarily a bad reflection on you. So I think it's a bad reflection if people are leaving because they don't think the quality of what you're doing is, is good. Um, so I would worry more about what kind of reviews are you getting? Are people recommending your materials to others? Are you getting feedback that people are unhappy? And is it something you can change or you think you should change? And just really um, letting people sort of vote in that way. Mm, that's great advice. Thank you. Well, look, um, we have to work towards wrapping up because I'm super mindful of your time. Um, I, I guess my last and final question is um, was there anything uh, that you'd, you'd like to share, just parting words? Um, and uh, where, where's the best place people can find out more about, I guess, yourself and your work? I know, like, um, you know, you're really into, into the films and, and, and uh, you know, um, stuff like that. So, yeah, was there anything else here you'd like to share? Or, um, yeah, we can wrap there. Um, well, thank you. Um, I don't have any, you know, I mean, I, feel like we covered a lot of ground in this in this conversation i don't have any way that people can reach me i don't want people to try to reach me oh of course i mean um, that's, that, <laughs> I, I didn't mean like that sorry with, that's part of the problem with why i don't do interviews because they only lead to more interviews and more people wanting you know to hear your story and and to learn from you and things like that and so um i it's a weird thing to not want more of the same but i don't um so um I think, you know, just if if people find what I said to be of value, um, I'm really happy to have shared. And, um, you know, just think everybody who has a company, you have to really 
look at yourself critically and say, am I on the right path? Is this working? Is this not working? And if it isn't working, can I let it, you know, rest for a minute or do I need to change? And, you know, those are all such personal decisions that are based on so many factors that are impossible to predict. So, you know, there's a lot of decisions that you make as a founder every day of your life. And um, I was very lucky to work with my husband. And I think the two of us had a good way of feeding off each other and being that sort of critical sounding board who was still supportive. And, um, you know, I know that we had a lot of good instincts and a lot of good luck and a lot of hard work, but, um, I, I don't think there's one way to succeed. I think there's lots of different, you know, definitions of success and, uh, everybody needs to find, find their own. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content, either start or grow their business which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in-depth on teaching a particular topic and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.